When I first began to teach on almsgiving, I explained in my first lesson that the reason for teaching these lessons is because I was approached by a person with something out of the book of Tobit, the apocryphal book of Tobit, that taught that giving alms atoned for sin. So there's no way, I mean, if it teaches that giving alms atones for sin, there's no way that Tobit could be Holy Scripture. So let's just throw it out. Let's don't study it. Let's don't test it. Let's just throw it out. I think that's the mindset of a lot of Protestants today. We bend over backwards to make things harmonize in the accepted canon. I've seen some fanciful harmonizations before. But one little wrong move from the quote-unquote apocrypha and let's just toss it out the window. Instead of tossing it out the window, I thought about it, I meditated on it, and I started to test it. And I started to ask myself, is there anywhere in the books that Christians in our culture already accept as Scripture that teach the same thing that the book of Tobit teaches in chapter 4 and chapter 12? And that question led me on an in-depth study about almsgiving. And almsgiving covers a wide variety of things. Almsgiving is the practice of helping other people. It's showing acts of kindness and mercy on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's also giving money to the poor or to people that are in need. All of that is accompanied in almsgiving. And I'll get to this in, when I go through Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew chapter 6 is actually all about practicing righteousness. The whole chapter, I never saw this before until this year, but the whole chapter is about practicing righteousness in three ways. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. That's what that whole chapter is about in the Sermon on the Mount. So I've shown you all much of what I've learned from my studies on almsgiving. I'd be glad to share with anybody my notes. You can watch the sermons online. But today I'm going to focus on the idea that almsgiving atones for sin. Now that's an odd thought at first. It was an odd thought when I first was told that Tobit taught that. Because when we think of atonement and forgiveness of sin, we automatically think what? The Messiah. That's what I think. The Messiah. The word atonement simply means forgiveness, reconciliation, a restoration of favor. And through Yeshua's life, death, resurrection, ascension to heaven to be our high priest in the heavens, we are forgiven of our sin. And we're reconciled to Yahweh, our Heavenly Father, which is the ultimate goal. He's the one we transgressed against, so we're reconciled to Him. So why in the world would anybody say that almsgiving atones for sin? You know, sometimes we think that we have all the truth on a particular subject and then all of a sudden, through scripture reading, scripture study, and then discussing with other people who read and study the scriptures, we find another piece to the puzzle that was there the whole time, but we didn't know it existed. And then we have to rework our doctrine and see how and where the piece fits into what we're going to believe. Uh, reworking our doctrine is not always a bad thing. I don't think we need to be so open-minded that our brains fall out, but we have to test what we believe, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Growth is a good thing. Growth doesn't always mean that you didn't have salvation before and now you do. Now, sometimes it can. You can be an unbelieving sinner and grow into a believing saint. But growth doesn't, I would say most of the time, doesn't mean that you don't have salvation and now you do after you grew. It's just the reality that we don't know everything and we don't learn everything all at once. 
I think about everything I've learned over the past 25 years now that I dedicated my life and my time to studying the Bible for myself. I did that when I was 15 years old. I'm 40 now. So I've been studying the Bible for about 25 years, and I think about everything that I've learned in my study time. And I cannot imagine if Yahweh would have put all that on me in one night. <laughs> Too much to bear, Father. Too much to bear. He was patient. He's long-suffering. I'm thankful for that. So in studying this subject, I found verses in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what I mean is the books that we're accustomed to reading in our American culture, our Western Christian culture, that teach the exact same thing that the book of Tobit teaches, that almsgiving atones for sin. Now, I also found that another book in the so-called Apocrypha teaches this heavily, and that is the book of Sirach. I say so-called Apocrypha because I am personally convinced that the word Apocrypha is a name that was given to certain books of Scripture by a man named Jerome, the man who produced the Latin Vulgate in the late 4th to early 5th century A.D. Before Jerome's time, those books were never called Apocrypha. The name Apocrypha was given to these books by Jerome because he was persuaded that they were not Scripture. Some people say Apocrypha means of doubtful authenticity or hidden or secret something like that. Prior to Jerome, the earliest Christians all accepted this book and these other books as Scripture, and they remained in the Bible as far as up to the 1611 King James Version. The 1611 KJV does put them in between the Testaments, but they're still in the Bible. So anybody that had a 1611 Bible had the book of First and Second Maccabees, Tobit, Sirach, so forth and, and so on. They're also in the 1560 Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the Bible that was used by the pilgrims who sailed over here to the New World on the Mayflower, and they were actually refused to use the King James Bible because it was the Bible of, the, of England put forth by the king. Uh, they said it was too high church. It used the word church instead of congregation like the Geneva used. Um, used the word baptize instead of immerse like the Geneva used or at least William Tyndale's used. I used to be under the impression that Catholics added these books to Scripture. That's what I was told when I was young. Roman Catholics added those books to Scripture. We're not Catholic. We don't need to read those books. I have, through my studies as an adult, found out that that is a myth. That's actually a lie. And the reason we don't have those books in our Bible now is because Protestants removed them from Scripture. So I now believe that Tobit and Sirach are books of the Bible and... I wish that I had more of this understanding when my children were little because I didn't have the understanding that I have now when my children were little. But I wish that I would have so I could have trained them more with these books because there is so much benefit and blessing to reading these books. Such is life, though. We learn, we grow. I plan on teaching on this more at a later time, but I just want to point some of that out uh, before I move on. What are the verses that I found that teach about almsgiving, atoning for sin? I gave you one of them in my first lesson on almsgiving, and that's in Daniel 4.27 or Daniel 4.24 in some Bible versions. This is where Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and gives him counsel on how to atone for his sin of pride. We should know if we are familiar with Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's greatest sin was the sin of pride. Yahweh brought him down, made him into an animal for seven years because he was haughty and he was proud. And the Greek Septuagint is the clearest version of this. I'm reading from the Brenton translation, Daniel 4, 
verse 24, where Daniel the prophet, prophet means one who stands in the place of Elohim on the earth. Daniel the prophet says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel please thee, and atone for thy sins by alms, and thy iniquities by compassion on the poor. It may be the Almighty will be long-suffering to thy trespasses. Prophet Daniel, who is one of the most righteous men in all of the Bible. The book of the prophet Ezekiel tells us this. It mentions three righteous men, Noah, Job, and Daniel. So Daniel is one of the most righteous men in the whole Bible. He tells this king, the way to atone for your sin is give alms to and show compassion on the poor. So there it is. Almsgiving somehow, whether we understand how it works or not, somehow almsgiving atones for sin, thus saith Daniel the prophet. But that's not the only verse that teaches this in the Older Testament that we're accustomed to. In my studies, I ran across Proverbs 15:27. Now, let me read to you this proverb from my personal Bible. I still use a 2004 HCSB. I probably won't ever stop using it because it's got a lot of my notes and underlining in there, and those are precious to me and valuable to me. But I use a variety of Bibles. I had a lady call me yesterday from California, 83 years old. Is this Brother Matthew? Yes, ma'am. She said, first thing I want to know is if I donate to you, is it tax deductible? <laughs> I said, no, ma'am, it's not. I said, we don't we don't do any of that. And I didn't know what I was going to get. I mean, you know, you, you talk lightly when you're speaking to somebody that's 83 years old, right? Because you're supposed to respect the, the elder age. She said, well, praise the Lord. I knew I called the right place. She said, you must not be a 501c3 preacher. <laughs> I said, nope, I'm not a 501c3. She said, praise the Lord. What kind of Bible do you use? I said, I use all kind of Bibles. A World English Bible I've really been enjoying. I've really been enjoying the Good News Bible. Uh, I told her about the Septuagint. She said, well, I use the 1611 King James Version. I said, I love the 1611 King James Version. My wife prefers the KJV. It's a great translation. And I love it. And one of the reasons I love it is because of the books of First and Second Maccabees and Tobit and Sirach and Judith and Bell and the Dragon and Estrus and all this kind of stuff. All these books are in it. And whew, you could have heard a pin drop. It got real quiet. I don't know if she knew that. Um, but I explained that to her, and she said she looks forward to talking to me at a later time. So praise Yahweh. I get phone calls from people all the time, all over the world, really. But I was thankful to talk to her about that. My HCSB 2004 says, Proverbs 15, 27, The one who profits dishonestly troubles his household, but the one who hates bribes will live. And when we read that verse... You don't see anything that speaks of atoning for your sin by giving alms. But look at how this reads in the Septuagint. Again, from the Brenton translation. A receiver of bribes destroys himself, but he that hates the receiving of bribes is safe. By alms and by faithful dealing, sins are purged away. But by the fear of Yahweh, the Lord, everyone departs from evil. Very straightforward there in the Septuagint. And let me remind you, I've said this before, I've never taught a class on this, but I think this will be my next Bible study class, class is that I teach, on the Greek, is on the Greek Septuagint. But the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it is the oldest Old Testament in existence. It began to be translated about 250 years before the Messiah was ever born. 
90% of the time, when you're reading the New Testament and you read an author quote the Old Testament, 90% of the time, roughly, the quotation is directly from the Greek Septuagint. I used to wonder, like when you read Hebrews, why does the author of Hebrews quote the Older Testament, but you go back and read where he's quoting from and it don't sound the same? It's because he wasn't quoting from the, the Proto-Masoretic or the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. He wasn't using that. He was using the Greek Septuagint. I don't want to get on a rabbit trail, but this would be the Bible that the earliest Christians would use predominantly. This is what they would read in Proverbs 15, 27. By alms and by faithful dealing, sins are purged away. Now, why is there a difference between the Greek proverb and the Hebrew proverb? Well, actually, as I continued to study, I found out that there really wasn't a difference when we realized that the longer text in Proverbs 15, 27 is found in the Hebrew proverbs, but in the next chapter, Proverbs 16, verse 6. In other words, the Hebrew and the Greek contain the verse. It's just Proverbs 15 in Greek and Proverbs 16 in Hebrew. So Proverbs 16, verse 6 reads, this is the World English Bible up at the top, By mercy and truth, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of Yahweh, men depart from evil. And you see Proverbs 15, 27 on the Septuagint below. You see the parallel. Mercy and truth are in the Hebrew, and alms and faithful dealings are in the Greek. Mercy is alms. Truth is faithful dealings. As a matter of fact, when you study the, the Greek word, elemasune, that's the word where we get alms, you find that often in the Greek Septuagint, it's translated as mercy when it's talking about Yahweh being merciful on humans. It's as though Yahweh is the rich one, we're the poor ones, and when He shows us long-suffering and patience and kindness, He's giving alms to us humans on the earth. The word is used frequently of Yahweh's mercy. So you get the same idea from Proverbs 16.6 in the Hebrew proverb. It's just clearer in the Greek proverb. And the Greek is what the majority of the early Christians were reading and studying in the first century A.D. and centuries after that as well. Now to the book of Sirach. The book of Sirach has become some of my favorite reading to do. It's written by a Hebrew person in 180 B.C. Very similar in scope to the book of Proverbs. If you love the book of Proverbs, you will love the book of Sirach. It is contained. This book is contained in the oldest copies of the Greek Septuagint available to us today. Let me show you a little nugget here. I don't want to go too far on a rabbit trail. I tell people it's okay to go on a rabbit trail as long as you don't eat the rabbit when you catch it. I don't want to go too far, but let me show you a little nugget here before we see what Sirach says about alms. In the 1611 KJV, this, this is in this Bible, this is 1611 KJV, not an original, but a replica. I think they had a 400, 400th year anniversary edition I've seen at Walmart. So... You can buy one there, and, and it's just a reprint in the pages. I would recommend that you get one, though, because you'll be able to verify what I'm saying here. In the 1611 KJV, there's a footnote at Matthew 6, verse 7, where Yeshua teaches us how not to pray. Memory says, don't pray like the heathens. I taught on that not long ago. They use vain repetitions. They speak a lot. They babble and think that their God will hear them because they have a lot of speech. Well, there's a footnote by repetitions in the 1611. And the footnote right beside it says ECCLUS 7.16. That doesn't stand for the book of Ecclesiastes. That's a book we're common 
2, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. That stands for the book of Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesiasticus. That's another name for the book of Sirach. Wisdom of Sirach is the primary name, or Ben Sirach. But the reason that this book was surnamed Ecclesiasticus, catch this, is because this book, Sirach, was read out loud frequently in a lot of Latin Christian churches in the early centuries A.D. The name Ecclesiasticus means church book or church reading book. Uh, one of the quote-unquote church fathers named Cyprian, he talks about this. They would read it, and the reason they would read it out loud in church is because it had so much wisdom in it. It's like when we read Proverbs here. A lot of, we've read Proverbs through all 31 chapters many times, and every, every chapter I'll stand there and listen to it be read, or I'll read it and I'll think, man, this is good stuff. <laughs> well, the Latin churches would read the book of Sirach, and so they call it church book, Latin Ecclesiasticus. In Sirach 7, verse 14, now, I don't know if the footnote in Matthew 6, 7 in this Bible is a misprint, or sometimes certain Bibles will do their verse dividing differently. You've noticed that if you've done a lot of Bible study. Some Bibles will have one verse marked as 15, another Bible will have it marked as 16, so forth and so on. But in the book of Ecclesiasticus, chapter 7, 14, or Sirach 7, 14, KJV 16, 11, it says this, Use not many words in a multitude of elders... And make not much babbling when thou prayest. So Yeshua was pulling from the book of Sirach when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. That's the only text in the Older Testament that mentions anything about vain repetitions or babbling when you pray. Now, the reason I bring this up, and there are other examples, but I didn't want to make this sermon long because we're hungry. <laughs> I bring up this to show you that the book of Sirach was known by the translators of the 1611 KJV. And it was known by the readers of the 1611 KJV. They put the footnote in there to refer you to Sirach. You've got preachers today that say, we know the Apocrypha is not Scripture because the New Testament never quotes or alludes to the Apocrypha. That's a lie. I can show you many times where it quotes and alludes to the Apocrypha. We would know this too, just like the 1611 readers. We would know this if a group of people would not have decided to remove it from the Bible. <laughs> I'm 40 years old, and I just started learning about Sirach a few years ago. I told a brother that's been studying that book for a lot longer than me, I'm sad because he can quote it like I can quote books that I'm familiar with. He can quote it and tell you where it's at. I can't do it because I've just started reading it, just started studying it just for a few years. So that saddens me that I did not grow up with it like I did Proverbs. What does Sirach say about atoning almsgiving? Sirach chapter 3 verse 30, this is from the 1611 KJV, says this, Water will quench a flaming fire, and alms maketh an atonement for sins. As water puts out a fire, almsgiving takes away sin. What's interesting here is that in the 1611, there's a footnote here referring the reader to Daniel 4.24, where Daniel says to the king, Atone for thy sins by alms, and thy iniquities by showing compassion on the poor. And there's also a footnote, look at it, Matthew 5, verse 7. You know what Matthew 5, 7 says? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive or obtain mercy. I got it there, KJV. Giving out mercy brings back mercy. And the Greek words for merciful and mercy here in this text are 
Elaman, 1655, and Eliah, 1653. And 1654 is Elimasune. They're all related. This is talking about alms. Blessed are the almsgivers, for they shall receive. Also in Sirach 35, 1 through 2, it says, The man who keeps the law will abound in offerings. He who heeds the commandment sacrifices a peace offering. He who returns a kindness offers fine wheat flour. And he who does alms sacrifices a praise offering. What's interesting here is that giving to the poor in the book of Sirach is viewed as a type of a sacrifice. Like an animal sacrifice. That's what verse 1 is talking about. And we know one of the purposes of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were to atone for sin. Read Leviticus 16. That's what this day is all about that they would offer up animals, specifically two goats. One was a live sacrifice given to Azazel, and the other one was a sacrifice that was killed. And the Bible says they atone for sin. Now, obviously, I don't believe they do the greatest work that the Messiah did for us, but I believe Leviticus 16. I believe that they did atone for sin for the Israelites under the older covenant in regards to the earthly tabernacle. I have to believe it. The Bible says it. But somehow here in Sirach, he likens almsgiving as a type of sacrifice. It's equivalent with a sacrifice. He who returns a kindness is, is like he offered fine wheat flour. How many times in Leviticus we've been reading it? We read about offering up that fine wheat. And he who does alms sacrifices a praise offering or a thank offering. Let's now look at the words of Yeshua the Messiah and we'll see that he actually taught this. Never saw this before till I studied this subject. Luke eleven thirty seven through forty one. I'm going to read from the HCSB. As he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. Now remember what that is. If you know the Bible, Matthew fifteen, Mark seven. Remember when the Pharisees came to Yeshua and said, Why do your disciples not perform the ritual ham washing before they eat bread? Well, Yeshua didn't perform it either, and the Pharisee was amazed. Why don't you keep the tradition of the elders and perform the ritual washing? So many pours, so many pours, a certain prayer, so forth and so on before you eat. Verse 39, But the Master said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside you are full of greed and evil. Yeshua never told the Pharisees, Don't clean the outside. He just said, you're cleaning only one and neglecting the inside. Okay, Verse 40, fools, didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? 41, but give to charity what is within, and then everything is clean for you. This verse used to puzzle me. I have seen people use it before, verse 41, I've actually had this verse used on me in debate one time trying to say that Yeshua is contradicting Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 and teaching everybody that all the animals are clean to eat now. We can eat the pig, we can eat the camel, so forth, the rabbit, so forth and so on. That's not the context here. There would never be pig or camel meat at the Pharisee's house. You would never have camel burgers at Mr. Pharisee's house. It wouldn't happen. It's not the context not talking about the dietary law here. What Yeshua is referencing is the Pharisees' outward appearance, how they look. 
my son Elijah just read it in Matthew 23. They make their tassels long. They make their phylacteries big. They wear the long robes just for show. They make the long prayers just for show. So they do all this to the outside. And if you saw them, you'd think, holy man. But Yeshua knew their hearts. He said, inside you're full of greed and evil. Notice that, verse 39. But inside you are full of greed and evil. The word greed there, if you study that, it refers to stinginess, the evil eye, cheating, robbery. So this is what he says they are full of on the inside. Your inside's full of cheating and robbery and stinginess, greed. But he who made you, O Pharisee, speaking of Yahweh, Yahweh the one that made the Pharisee, made both your outside and your inside, so why don't you concern yourself with cleaning up both of them? Not just the outside, but also the inside. How crazy would it be that if we had dinner and we washed dishes that we only washed the outside of the dish? And then I have Gabe over for dinner and I set the plate and I said, don't worry, these were washed. And he looks at it and the spaghetti stains all on the inside of the dish. <laughs> says, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be eating here or not. We would all think that. Well, in verse 41, when this Bible has Yeshua saying, but give to charity what is within, other versions, King James, English Standard, Young's Literal, other versions use the word alms, but give alms. And that's because the Greek word here for charity is elemosune, it's alms. It's our Greek word that we've been talking about. Now, many Protestant translators struggle with this phrase. Uh, or the Orthodox and the Catholics don't. The Protestants do. They struggle with this phrase because they don't want it to sound like almsgiving atones for sin. Because right after Yeshua speaks of, but give alms, he says, and then everything will be clean for you. Everything will be okay. Now, the problem with translating it as, but give to charity what is within, HCSB, is that Yeshua has just said that the Pharisees inside is full of greed and evil. So he's not telling them to give what they have inside of them as alms, as some scholars and commentators say. Now this is a little technical, but some scholars say that the sentence is what's called an accusative of respect, meaning it should be rendered as give alms with respect to or in consideration of the things that are within. Now I thought about giving you the scholars, but I'm not going to do that. You can go back and look at it if you want to. Anytime, listen, anytime somebody says, I go with what the scholars say, what they mean is, I go with what the scholars that I read say. <laughs> because the scholars disagree on stuff just like me and you. And I am a fan of pointing out scholarly material to people that nobody looks at. So I read a book recently by David J. Downs, who is an unknown scholar, but he's got this big, thick, expensive book, like 60 bucks. But I bought it, and it has so much good material in it, and he talks about alms in Christian history. Um, he's one that says it's an accusative of, of respect. So the meaning is that the practice of giving alms helps, catch this, helps to get rid of the greed and the evil inside of a person. Give alms with respect or in consideration of your problem that you have inside, then everything will be clean to you. Now, this may help us with answering how does almsgiving atone for sin? Remember I started, I said, I don't really know, but whether or not we know if the Bible says it, we believe it. This might help us understand, though. It could be that the way it atones for sin is that through giving to the poor regularly as a habit, the more and more we do it, the less and less greed and stinginess we have inside. 
our hearts begin to be cleansed and purified because we've been giving away our money to people that are in need. Our natural man wants to hoard wealth. But Scripture teaches that when we have abundance and are blessed, we need to build a bigger table so other people can join us. Have you ever heard somebody use the phrase, love covers a multitude of sins? Love covers a multitude of sins. Don't you know that? The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. That phrase comes from the book of 1 Peter. What does it mean? I heard that phrase my whole life growing up in church. But what does it mean? Is it speaking about Yahweh's love toward us? That would make sense. Yahweh's love covers over our sins. Or is it speaking about our loving actions toward others? And if it's speaking of our actions towards other people, does the love that we have cover somebody else's sin or cover our own sin? One way that this verse was interpreted in early Christianity is as a reference to performing acts of charity, almsgiving to others, and through that love, your sins are atoned for. You will find this in the Didache, Polycarp, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Cyprian, and others. These early authors do not prove this is what Peter spoke of because let me guarantee you, I do not agree with everything these men say. But what it shows is that the verse has been interpreted this way in Christian history. I think it's the right interpretation because the context of 1 Peter 4 and 8 teaches this. Many scholars today, catch this, most, most scholars today view this as a phrase expressing how we practice horizontal charity towards others and it covers over another person's sins against us. In other words, our love forgives their sin. Now, I agree with that in concept. I agree with that statement. I don't think that's what 1 Peter is talking about, though. And this is why, the context of the verse. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. Above all, Peter says, above all, keep your love for one another at full strength since love covers a multitude of sins. Look at verses 9 and 10. Let's just keep reading. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Based on the gift they have received, everyone should use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of the Almighty. The context of the verse is about almsgiving. Being hospitable. You know that word hospitable in the Greek? It's made up of two words. Philos and xenos. Philos means love and kindness. Xenos means a stranger. What does Hebrews 13 say? Be careful when you entertain strangers. Be hospitable. Because some people have entertained strangers and have been an angel and they didn't know it. Show hospitality. There is nothing here in Peter about forgive, forgive somebody for a sin they did to you. No, it's about hospitality, serving one another based on the gifts that you have. Let your love be strong because love covers a multitude of sins. I'm suggesting it's our own sins that are covered. When we show forth love, charity, alms, kindness to other people, I'm suggesting our own sins are covered over some way by those actions. So, as I conclude today... I took a step back after I was shown what was in the book of Tobit. And this is my fourth sermon now. I think sixth if you count the two I did in Matthew 6 about the treasures in heaven and the good eye and the evil eye. The sixth sermon that I've taught about almsgiving. 
And in these six sermons, I've shared with you most of what I've discovered. Some stuff I've just left in my notes. I don't put everything into sermon. I'm still not exactly for sure how almsgiving atones for sin, but I believe that it does based on Scripture. I don't believe it takes the place of the Messiah, obviously. I mean, nothing takes the place of what our Messiah did for us. But what that does not mean is that other things can't accompany the Messiah in some way. The best thing I've come up with so far, and I hope that I continue to grow in knowledge, the best thing I've come up with is that Luke 11 text where I think Yeshua is telling the Pharisees that if you, if you start giving alms to the poor, it, it'll, it'll help the greed and the stinginess in your heart. It'll atone for that. I, I think that's, that's the best thing I've come up with. So you can take that and study it yourself. But I hope this message and all of the other sermons that I've given on alms has been a blessing to you. And listen, if, if all we get is listening to a sermon and we don't put things to practice, it doesn't do any good. You should be a regular giver of alms. Sometimes that might mean money. Sometimes that might be showing kindness. Sometimes somebody may need some help. Sometimes they might need a, a cheerful word. Give it out liberally. Give it out liberally. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I need all the mercy I can get. So I'm going to give out all that I have. I'm learning more to do that. And I've asked Yahweh to forgive me for the times that I haven't. I love you. Most importantly, Yahweh loves you. And blessed day of atonement.